And oh yeah. Yes, if uh, that last uh, uh, walking before dinner, if you want to use that instead for steam, uh, that's the time when they're turned on, you can do that. Of course. And um, so you'll note that at the, um, I don't have it with me now, uh, the, the time set aside for movement I think it's from 2.30 to, or 2.45 to 3.45. I think Vince has volunteered. Vince, have I volunteered? Vince has volunteered tomorrow to lead a, from 2.45 until 3, a uh, silent, what the hell are you doing, Vince? <laughs> a mindful Qigong. So that will be at awakening, and then you can jump right into the pool. And uh, I know the pool saved me, but a little bit of Vince doing his magic might just push you over the edge into enlightenment. <laughs> you can do that. You can promise them that, right? Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, and of course, you're welcome to practice here on your own if uh, swimming and qigong and any other of those things. Right. You know, you're, you're not obligated to, yeah. uh, but. Strongly encourage to break up uh, the day with some movement and also to get some uh, cold water in there if it's something that you like. Or yoga, highly do some yoga, go into Savasana. savasana. And uh, so, uh, any other questions about the schedule? So, Thursday, everything will change up. Uh, both the morning and the afternoon, a little bit different. So this schedule is good for tomorrow and Wednesday. And, uh, all right. So uh, continuing on with the sort of opening theme for this retreat. In early Buddhism... Emotions tended to be broken down into two very basic categories. There was kusala emotions, which were skillful emotions. Joy, happiness, kindness, compassion, appreciation, and tranquility. Those states were considered to be divine states, and they were the target of the practice. But there was also what was known as unskillful states, fear, baya, anger, koda, lust, raga, grief, soka, jealousy, isa, and ill will, bayapada. And uh, so, as um, one Buddhist historian put it, in the Dharma, the entire the early Dharma, the, all effort went into bringing emotions directly under the control of the will. Buddhist training aimed at mastering the emotions. And in fact, uh, the first stage of enlightenment was called viraga, v meaning ending, and raga, passions, passionate emotions. So there was this very kind of negative view 
of uh, a whole swath of human emotions. Now let's put that aside for a moment. And uh, sorry, I'm having to yell. I'm competing with. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, in our culture, which is, happens to be, uh, I'm talking about American culture, uh, the culture that Kathy and I are from, is uh, like so many others, there's uh, a fabric of misogyny throughout, embedded deeply in our culture. And for uh, one of the ways women have been uh, marginalized is the accusation that they are more emotional and men are, are uh, somehow awarded with the tag of being more rational in many of the uh, cultural depictions of gender. And the irony of all this is not only is it not true and, and simplistic and meaningless, but suppose for a second it were true Actually, what we are discovering more and more uh, through the work of wonderful uh, psychologists, neuroscientists, and so forth, neurologists, is um, that there is no such thing as making intelligent decisions without the integration of emotions. Emotions, in fact, play an incredibly essential component of any useful decision we make. The emotional mind is just as a core component to living a complete and uh, meaningful life as the left hemispheric rational mind, which can weigh uh, decisions in a kind of pseudo-logical way. There was a landmark book that came out about 20 years ago by uh, Antonio Damasio, and it's called Descartes' Era. And in this book, Damasio summarized uh, his research for uh, quite a long period of time. He was interested in the role that emotions played in the decision-making apparatus of the, of the mind and our human experience. And Damasio came up with a series of ingenious experiments, and one of which was uh, uh, with card players. And he also studied people who had, due to strokes and cancer and other um, uh, and uh, other events such as injuries and accidents, had the parts of the brain that provide emotion recognition were damaged. And all of his research pointed in one direction, that in order to make any wise decision in life, we're not just using the left hemisphere, the rational mind that sort of plays things out into the future and visualizes possible outcomes, but we're constantly also weighing in the wisdom of the emotional mind, which contains an entire history of all of our 
previous interactions, all of the times in our life where we felt pain, regret, sadness, joy, our entire emotional histories are stored in the emotional mind. And whenever we make a decision, we're not just playing the, uh, the possibilities out into the future. We're also weighing the emotional component. A fascinating bit of research, Damasio found people who, due to um, cysts in the brain and other uh, events, had to have the insula, which is the part of your brain that reads your emotional body and, in essence, provides all the information about your um, unconscious mind's messages to you. When those people have that part of the brain damaged, they become less and less capable of making decisions. They became more and more stuck. And even though every, every part of their rational mind was still working intact, they could no longer make a choice. They became stuck. It turned out that the emotional mind was actually playing a greater role in weighing decisions that are of any import in our life than the logical left hemisphere, which narrates life. But when it comes to picking and choosing, what am I going to do? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to be with? How am I going to prioritize? We're not using that logical, rational part anywhere near as much as we want to believe. We're using our emotional mind. He called it the somatic marker theory, and basically what he demonstrated with his uh, research with card players is that card players <laughs> unconsciously know emotionally, well before they rationally know, when it's time to stick or to bet, whether it's time to push ahead with a bluff, or whether it's time to fold. And he demonstrated this by not only uh, EEG scans, but also uh, he attached sensors to the skin that is a direct uh, a kind of um, uh, expression of emotional messaging. So this opened up a whole field of study. And at NYU, Joseph Ledoux followed up, and he, too, verified Damasio's work and showed that um, a large part of our decision-making are the process that we do to weigh our lives, to prioritize our lives, to choose wisely for ourselves in any authentic fashion requires integration of the emotional mind which is largely unconscious and doesn't speak to us through thought. The emotional mind sends its signals to us in a wide variety of ways that are foreign to our thought-based, smaller, conscious awareness. The emotional mind speaks through the body, through contractions in the chest and the stomach, through feelings of anxiety, through facial expressions, 
through the crack in the tone of our voice when we are sad even though we don't know why, through the watering eyes or the sudden feelings of elation, through the mind that is jumpy and cannot settle to the mind that suddenly becomes elated. We are constantly sending ourselves or our emotional mind, the unconscious parts of the brain, largely in the midbrain and the right hemisphere, are constantly sending us a host, an array of information that's telling us our entire, that's giving us the entire wisdom of our emotional past and telling us what it expects behind or what will happen with each decision we make. So, for example, uh, another thing that Ledoux and uh, the neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman and Fanegi found out was that the bulk of our emotions are activated by our interpersonal experience, the experience we have with other people. We like to think that a large amount of our emotions have to do with success or achievement, but actually those events, achieving something, are rewarded with short-term bursts of the dopamine reward system, which actually don't create lasting emotional activations. The emotions that are the key messaging from our unconscious mind are all about how well connected we feel to other people around us, how well connected we feel to our tribe, how well connected we feel to each other. If you look at emotions from this perspective, it becomes clear that emotions are simply a litmus test or a kind of a thermostat giving you feedback about how well connected you are to other people. Fear is the basic emotion to uh, retreat from people or situations that we feel are threatening. Anger is the urge to punish those that we believe have mistreated us or attachment figures. Disgust is the urge to expel a sensory experience. Joy is a broaden and build emotion that rewards us for connecting securely with people on an emotional level. Sadness and grief are the wounded withdrawal we feel when an attachment figure, a person that has cared for us or provided support, is no longer available. Pride is the feeling that we get through successfully helping other people that we're connected with. Shame and guilt are the feelings we experience, social emotions we experience when we do harm to the tribe and to the people we depend on. So, of all those emotions, only fear when we're faced with a threat and disgust when we're faced with a sensory experience we need to expel are emotions that may have no social component to them. But the rest are clearly messaging about how well we feel connected. This is because human beings are social beings. Our great advantage, 
which allowed us to survive was not that we run fast, was not that we fight well, was not that we can climb trees, we don't have shells or armoring that can protect us, but what we do do with greater alacrity than most species is we attach in groups. And we don't attach in only one way, we attach in two ways at least. We attach through the stories and the narratives that we tell using language, which resonates in the left hemisphere of the brain. But we also attach to each other in the expression and mirroring of our emotions. When I come to you and I'm sad, and I express that sadness visually through the tone of voice, through the gestures, through the body language, and you see my sadness and you mirror it back, you create a safe space and then you mirror it back, we have thus connected in a profoundly different way than through language. We have connected by, it could be said, the heart, not just the head. And interestingly enough, when human, the human species was starting, there was a species that we were competing with for the same resources. And this species was bigger than us, stronger than us, faster than us, and they had bigger brains than us. They were called Neanderthals, and they are now extinct. And there's only one reason why they are extinct. Because Neanderthals' brains were used to help give them eyesight, to help give them better hearing, but the emotional brain, the, four, the, uh, the forefrontal lobe of the left and right hemispheres, which allowed for emotion and logic integration, they didn't have. And so we now suppose that Neanderthals hated each other, didn't work in groups, and thus when it came to competing with Homo sapiens, they died out. Again, they were stronger, faster, ran faster. They, they could outfight us, but they could not connect to each other. It is our ability to connect through language and through emotion that gives us our great survival advantage. Each of us starts life connecting to the people around us entirely through emotion. You won't remember it because it's before the formation of your episodic memory, which starts around five. And any memory you believe you have before then, I'm sad to suggest, but it's probably what's called a um, trace memory, something that's constructed by your mind afterwards. But your first four years of life, you are largely connecting with the caretakers th through emotions. Even around the time a child develops language, it's not using language in any meaningful way to connect to its caretakers. The first four years, what we're doing is we're expressing our states of being through emotional activations. The child speaks to the parents through sadness, cries, frustration, stomping its feet, through moving its body through all of the basic gestures that a child has. 
And when a parent is attuned, the parent sees the emotion, creates a tolerant receptor for it, and then mirrors it back. Literally, the mother will smile when the child is happy, or frown when the child is upset, or look shocked when the child is shocked. And in that very basic exchange, Fanegi suggests the entirety of the human emotional life begins to be formed. And all of the emotional templates which form our expectations about other people and about how well we can connect start to be built. If all goes well, when we express our different vocabularies of emotions, our anger, frustration, our confusion, our shock, our fear, our loneliness, etc., to the people around us, if all goes well, they receive those emotions, they respond back with care and mirroring, and the child begins to recognize its emotions and begins to feel confident that through the rest of its life it can use these emotions to build relationships with other people. But what happens if we grow up in an environment where even well-meaning caretakers fail, which even the most well-meaning caretakers will do at times, to mirror and open to and create a safe space? The child, if this pattern continues enough, will learn to essentially repress the emotion, will begin to change one emotion for another, that's called masking, or will begin to shut down the emotion, will start entire compliant false self performances where the child will pretend to be in an emotional state that it knows it will be rewarded for rather than to express its authentic emotional states. And so what happens is a bifurcation. There becomes a buried set, set of emotions which we have been trained either through caretakers or through schools or institutions or siblings or whatever to withhold. And then there is the set of emotions that we feel confident about. And we can develop an entire split between that which we feel will not be tolerated and must be uh, withheld. I would suggest that that feeling of something's missing, that feeling of emptiness, that feeling that there's something about us that's not complete, is nothing to do with something that's missing literally from our lives, but the trace memory we all have of our authentic feelings which we learned young in life to bury rather than to express and feel ourselves. Furthermore, today addiction researchers such as Flores suggest that all addictions and all compulsive use of drugs and all compulsive behaviors are an attempt to replace other people when we feel emotions that we don't believe other people will tolerate. Let me say that again. Drugs 
alcohol, addictive shopping, food, addictions, all across the board are now seen as an attempt to replace other people. We need other people to express and help us process our emotion. But if we begin to believe early enough in life that certain of our impulses or emotions or our experiences in the case of trauma are unacceptable to be expressed, then we will use drugs or shopping or other addictive behaviors as a way to regulate those emotions when they start to appear. This is what this is the real tragedy of childhood abuse, sexual and physical, is not just the abuse itself, but the fact that the parent, in essence, informs the child that you cannot express your experience to another. So the child is doubly wounded, not just by the trauma of the caretaker or the teacher or the sibling or the family member or the person that should have been trustworthy not only becomes somebody who's abusive, but they also send a message to the child that this cannot be spoken about. And whenever the child, as an adult now, starts to feel the memory resurfacing, the only solution becomes using. Because the trauma becomes too great to be felt. That which other people told us we could not share, we cannot even feel ourselves. So, if it was simply a case that we could repress our emotions and that they would go away, it would be a much easier state of affairs. But the emotional mind, of course, is not uh, uh, emotions are vital messages about our security, how well connected we feel to other people is vital that we know. And so emotions that we repress don't just go away. They stay beneath the surface but continually try to rise up and they will, they will in essence sabotage us in any way or get our attention in any way they can. So, for instance, someone who has uh, not allowed themselves to feel the grief of a disappointing relationship that has ended and has not grieved that relationship and has repressed that grief because they've been trained throughout their life that grief and sadness is something too scary to hold, that grief will come up as a, a form of fear or distrust in new relationships and will keep our distance and we will withhold emotions that we believe led to the previous relational breakdown. And so it snowballs. Sometimes emotions that are repressed we take out on entirely innocent people. The man who goes to a job that where he's abused and cannot doesn't feel safe to talk back to his boss who's abusive because it reminds him of his own abusive father may well go home and abuse his children or his dog 
or his neighbor. Emotions do not go away. They come out in dysregulated forms. And when we push them down long enough, we might find ourselves suddenly running away from, emo- from very feasible, worthwhile relationship possibilities at the first sign of conflict. We might find ourselves avoiding any confrontations, and all relationships, even healthy ones, require working through conflict. But we might find ourselves avoiding working through any conflictual experience because early on in life we saw our parents poorly modeling how anger can be meaningfully expressed or we ourselves were the victim of rage and we no longer feel we can safely be with our own frustration. So the key of Spiritual practice for me, in many ways, involves the integration, the reintegration of the emotional experiences that we have come to believe or have been trained to suppress, to not acknowledge, to keep at bay whether through substances or workaholism or food addictions or shopping or uh, avoidance coping or deflection or over-intellectualization or whatever strategies we choose, we keep large parts of our human experience locked away. And for me, the healing comes when we learn to turn towards that which we have disavowed and we create a safe space for it, which is what we'll be working on entirely tomorrow, emotion recognition and creation of a safe container. And then what we'll be doing on Thursday is the second part of the puzzle, which is the expression of emotion to other people. When we feel and express our emotional uh, experience. It starts, as Kathy said earlier today, it starts to flow. It no longer gets blocked up. It no longer gets built up and it no longer sabotages us because the sabotaging that emotions that are repressed do is they're so desperate to be felt, they come out in situations or they come out in dysregulated forms that we cannot hold. So suddenly we explode with rage or suddenly our fear of being vulnerable in relationships makes us flee where we could stay and work through our um, distrust. When people don't have emotion integration in their life, there are some telltale signs. One is, of course, overscheduling and busyness. The overscheduled, busy person who's constantly feeling they have to achieve and, and prove themselves and be perfect and all they do is someone who is essentially doesn't trust 
that they can get love through the expression of their core emotions, and thus is trying to uh, get love in other ways. They're trying to circumvent their authentic expression of their sadness, their, their loneliness, their fear, their grief. They're trying to supplant that with achievement. And so what you might wind up with is the person who stands in front of a room full of people at 60 or 70, having had a long, successful career with all the plaques of success, and deep down inside, this person feels completely empty because all of the success and achievement was a hollow charade to try to get love in any means possible. And this person might very well um, wish he or she could have traded their entire career in and instead have been the dancer or the painter or the artist or had lived a new life. But by that point, the terror of being authentic is so great. And the, the child, by the way, whose emotions are not tolerated by the caretaker or by the teacher or by the other kids, feels what psychologists call a form of annihilation, a form of terror, because to be rejected for a human being is the most vulnerable, horrific experience we can go through at any point of our life. But as a child where we're vulnerable and our entire survival depends upon connecting with other people, if we experience rejection, rejection feels like death. And so, even throughout the course of our lives, decades and decades later, we can fear being authentic because we believe that it will lead to rejection if we truly ever express our creativity, our vulnerability, our grief, our anger, our disappointment, if we ever express those parts of ourselves that we've been told are ugly or are unlovable, we literally, it can feel like death, like annihilation. So this work that we're doing requires to a real degree courage. It requires a sense of conviction. It requires a sense of, of willingness to reconnect with that which we have been so deeply wounded by. Other forms of, other signs of poor emotion integration are procrastination. Very often, I'll give you an example the person who's a wonderful photographer who shoots photograph after photograph, that's wonderful, but when it comes time for her to enter a photo contest or to show her work to a local gallery, she can't do it. She puts it off and stalls and rewrites the application and months and then years pass and even though she's built up this library of beautiful images, she cannot actually fulfill the final step of completing the application. Why is this? Is it because she's lazy? No. 
Is it because that she can't follow through? No. Is it because she's got some kind of disorder? No. All it means is that at some point early on in her life, when she tried to express her true authentic self to people around her, she experienced an early shame or rejection by other people. And her emotional mind, decades later into her adult life, believes that any expression of her true authentic feelings will again lead to rejection. And if you stated that to her, logically she might get it, but she still would struggle to finish the project because she is associated expressing herself with rejection. And rejection is amongst the most painful experiences a human being can go through. So tomorrow we're going to be doing a practice called RAIN, and I'll spend some time introducing it. And the goal of RAIN will be for us to, in our practice, to learn how to map our bodies and our states of mental activation so that we can begin to not only recognize our emotional vocabularies, but we can begin to turn towards those feelings or uh, underlying uh, energies that we have been keeping a great distance from for so many years. Anyway, I hope there was something worth pondering in that. And now um, I'm going to turn this off.